there comes a point when someone receives so much support from the elite that if they get into trouble, it's embarrassing for the elite and the elite don't want to talk about it. And that has been my experience in trying to get answers out of the elite about what went wrong here. My guest today is Simon Clark. Simon Clark is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal in London. His latest book is The Key Man. The Key Man is the amazing story of Arif Nakbi, the founder of Dubai-based private equity firm Abraj. He was the key man to the global elite searching for impact investments to make money and do good. Bill Gates and Western governments entrusted Nakbi with hundreds of millions of dollars to make profits and end poverty. In 2019, Nakbi was arrested on charges of fraud and racketeering at Heathrow Airport. A British judge has approved his extradition to the United States, and he faces up to 291 years in jail if found guilty. I recently sat down with Simon, and we talked about how Nakbi persuaded politicians that he could stabilize the Middle East by providing jobs, and how the world's financial elite fell for his scam, hook, line, and sinker. Simon, thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show. I really was looking forward to it after I read your book. And the name of the book is The Key Man, the true story of how the global elite was duped by a capitalist fairy tale. Simon, thanks so much. And you did some really amazing investigative journalism here. Thanks, Charles. Good to be talking to you. Uh, So how did you, let's start from the beginning. This, you received an email that something was not really, well, really from, it was a whistleblower. A whistleblower sent you an email and told you about his, did you know about this company beforehand or not? Yes, I've I've been reporting on this company for over a decade. Um, But the the story, the downfall of Abraj, the company that was managed by the key man, whose name was Izarif Nakvi, um, the downfall of Abraj started in January 2018 when my co-author, Will Louch, received an email from someone who would not give their name. This person said that they were an employee at Abraj and that they were too afraid to say what, who they were. But the problem was that hundreds of millions of dollars had gone missing from abroad. Okay, let me hundreds let, of let millions me, of dollars. Okay, let me yeah. stop you there. Let's let's back up for a second. So there was this one guy named Arif Nakiv, I believe is pronounced his last name. Arif Nakvi. 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 Okay, Arif Nakvi. He's a poor kid who grew up in Pakistan. Uh, I don't know if so poor. He comes out and he just a splash on the world stage of he's going to raise money in a private equity firm. And he is going to change the world. Take it from there. Yeah, so Arif is a very smart guy from Karachi, a big city in southern Pakistan. He's a middle-class guy in Pakistan. Uh, He goes to university in London. He goes to the London School of Economics. And then he works for a series of financial companies and, and a billionaire in Saudi Arabia, learning the tricks of the trade of being an investor, buying and selling companies. Um, In the 1990s, he starts his own company in Dubai. And in 2001, 2002, he starts Abraj in Dubai. 
And he makes some initially very successful deals. Uh, the first company that Abraj bought was called Aramex, which is like the FedEx of the Middle East. In 2002, it was trading on the NASDAQ stock exchange. And just after September 11, 2001 attacks, because of its big presence in the Middle East, its, its stock has, has tanked on NASDAQ. And so it's cheap. Uh, but the company is very professional. It has a good service. So Arif takes this company private from NASDAQ with his colleagues. They expand it, uh, rebase it in Dubai, and sell it five years later for a multiple of what they paid for it. So they were he was making some profitable investments. Okay, so this guy starts a private equity firm, and his his real tagline is, we're going to do good and make money in emerging markets, but he doesn't call them emerging markets because he finds that very disparaging, and he appeals to those uh, elites who agree or feel guilty about that. And he says, I'm going to change the world because I'm going to provide jobs in the Middle East, uh, jobs and services in the poorest of countries on planet Earth by buying these companies and producing an outstanding return. That's absolutely right. So in the years after Abraj was founded in 2002, uh, as a private equity firm, Arif realizes that he can present himself not only as an investor who can make money for billionaires, banks, pension funds that, that choose to invest in his funds, but he can also end poverty by investing in companies in, in poorer countries in, across Africa and South Asia. He's saying he's going to build these companies, create jobs, provide services that don't exist. And by having this pitch of saying he can make money and do good, he widens his investor base because there is a, there's a sort of class of government-owned fund out there called a development finance institution, which will put money into private equity firms in, in, in emerging markets or growth markets, as Arif called them. The United States has such a fund. It used to be called the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. President Trump changed the name to the US Development Finance Corporation. The United Kingdom has got one of these funds. It's called CDC. And Arif was raising money from these government funds as well as from billionaires and banks. And he was going about his business saying that he could make a fortune for himself and his investors and end poverty at the same time. Right. So he, he, he touches on a message which many people in the investment community and in government, and government especially, they were looking to do, they were looking to find someone who could actually implement this. And money starts flocking to this guy. Is that right? That is right. Um, yes, President Obama's government in particular started channeling hundreds of millions of dollars, U.S. taxpayers' money into a barrage. Um, one of the senior executives at a barrage was a college roommate of President Obama too. Uh, but the U U.K. government, the French government, Norwegians, the Germans, the Dutch, they were all providing a barrage with hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. But his somehow, 
they're closing an eye to a couple of red flags. Things aren't the way he makes them out to be, but they're so caught up with the story of doing good and wanting to believe this that they get caught up in this web of lies. Abraj did capture the zeitgeist. It was a capitalist firm that said it could not only make profit, but it could end poverty. And that is a very seductive message. And it was very convincing. And it was a message that Arif uh, gave every year at Davos, the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in the snow in, in the Swiss mountains. It was a message that he gave at Milken conferences, at World Bank conferences. Um, and he, he did become the sort of poster boy for emerging markets, private equity investing. So when I'm reading this book and I'm reading some of these deals he's doing, you don't list all the deals because he did have some profitable deals. But you just look in, for example, building hospitals, and I think it was Kenya or Nigeria, I'm not sure which one, where the average person made $3 a day. You, you know, I just looking without even looking at the numbers, how a hospital is going to be profitable in these areas. But he's selling it to these investors and they're sucking it up. That is... Absolutely correct. Um, he was building hospitals in, you were right, in Nigeria and Kenya and in Pakistan and India. So he raised a billion dollar healthcare fund. And this fund was, uh, st the stated purpose of the fund was to buy and build hospitals and clinics across Africa and South Asia and provide healthcare services to very poor people. However, the fund was a for-profit fund. So very poor people would have to pay for these services. Simple, important question here, which was probably glossed over, was how are very poor people going to afford to pay for healthcare services, which they don't have the money for? Um, so this fund raised a billion dollars, which is a lot of money, uh, because of its early investors. Um, Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, was a key early investor in this fund. Right, through, through, uh, the, through, Gates through, through the Gates Foundation put in $100 million. Right, so, so um, he is going, and, and first of all, you know, the um, as you mentioned in the book, he knows how to hire people of influence to get other people of influence. He stacks his Rasta with Harvard graduates with well-known politicians connected in other countries. So it becomes of a situation where no one's asking the hard questions because the window dressing looks picture perfect. Yeah. Um, if you've got Bill Gates and your billion dollar fund and the World Bank and the British and French governments, that tends to give confidence to other investors who may well think, if it's good enough for Bill Gates, it's good enough for me. But the, one of the lessons of this book is you've always got to do your own due diligence and you can't rely on anyone else to do it for you. You know, it, it, it's, it's always a case, it always seems to be a case that con men know how to tap in to the point, they know how to tap into people's psyche that to ask any questions that would raise any red flags is... Is a danger zone that it's impolite. It's not nice. How dare you ask that? 
And and this guy has a lot of influence. Uh, you know, he is he is. If you dare ask a question, he'll go to the top boss of that company and have you fired, which was absolutely staggering. How what a bully this man was. Yeah, that is a pattern which emerged in our reporting. Um, so the the problems for Braj really started in late 2017 um, when an anonymous whistleblower sent an email to investors, which is b- before we received our anonymous email. Well, 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 hang on one second. Hang on one second, Simon. I just want to back up before you spill the beans to the second half of yeah. the book, which I want to tell you is much more exciting than the first half because uh, it just picks up the pace. And I, I do want to say that at times I didn't know who to root for. And as the book kept going on, I kept rooting for him uh, just to get, you know, smack these elites in the head of thinking, you know, so much. Uh, for example, they've had, they had, as you detailed, meetings about how to deal with the poor and how to deal with the indigent and all sorts of countries. And these were billionaires sitting around the table. It reminded me of, of uh, colonialism where they would sit there and decide how to carve up Africa. It's where were the people? There was nothing. And it, it, they didn't ask any questions. They said this was good. It was just such a presumptuous, uh, um, um, uh, really presumptuous, of, of they knew better. Give us the money. We'll give it to this guy. He's our guy. And I found fascinating. He's saying he's producing 17.2% returns, which is a staggering return for PE, giving people back their money, making amazing deals, and at the same time, curing poverty. It's it's just right off the bat, you don't have to be a a rocket scientist to realize you just can't do that. It just doesn't work. Yeah, and charging a 2% annual fee and keeping 20% of the profits, don't forget. So yeah, you're absolutely right. This isn't isn't a book about one man. It's a book about our world and how, uh, even though there are many people out there saying they want to solve problems, those problems are not getting solved. And as you said, one of the key mess- takeaways from this book is that there are a lot of very rich people in this book saying that they want to end poverty. But there are no poor people in this book because in the, the conferences and meetings where these wealthy people are meeting, they are only meeting other wealthy people. Uh, this book is in part a story about the evolution of impact investing and ESG. And in one chapter, we tell the story of how impact investing really started as a formal movement. It happened in a villa in northern Italy owned by the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, and the first line of that chapter is the meeting to end poverty started with cocktails before dinner. I mean, the conversations may well be about poverty, but the people having those conversations are not the poor, uh, and their lifestyles are not poor. Now, it's great that there are wealthy people who want to have that conversation, but I don't think that conversation is going to become real until it's a conversation that includes poor people as well as the wealthy. And one of the conclusions in our epilogue is that, um, you know, if you rock up to a conference about poverty or even the global economy and there's no poor people there, then that ultimately has about as much as in- integrity as a conference of men talking about gender inequality. 
Now, we've got to the point where we recognise that to talk about gender equality, there need to be both genders present. But we haven't got to the point yet where we recognise that if we're going to solve poverty, then people who live on a dollar a day or a few dollars a day need to be included in that conversation, as well as people who earn much more than that. Right. Now, in the beginning, really from the beginning of, 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 uh, of his business career, he he preaches one thing and acts totally different. He talks about uh, transparency, yet his business is anything but transparent. He talks about caring for all people, yet he's a bully. He intimidates people. He embarrasses people. He pushes people's buttons in such a way that it's degrading. And those who are close to him and see that either either explain it away or they, they're too scared to say anything. Yeah, that's all true. So as, as, as his business career develops, he becomes more bold. He starts taking money from one fund to cover his lifestyle, transfers money out. He has his loyal minions do all this. And as he's doing this, at the same time, he's going out and, and, and fabricating how great a job his PE firm is doing in getting the world out of poverty. Yeah, that's what the evidence that we gathered for in our reporting at the Wall Street Journal showed. And it's also subsequently what the U.S. Department of Justice criminal indictment says. I remember reading your article, I think it was the summer of last year. Is that right? Is it when you came out with it in the journal? Was it? Uh, uh, we broke the story in 2018. 18. Wow. There's been yeah. a lot of coverage since, right. yeah. The, I think what, oh, there was a piece in the, ju- the journal last year as well. Last that's right. year, right. And that's the thing I picked it up. And, it, and, and the story's really not out there. It seemed to like die. Other than your book, uh, I don't see much of it out there. Am I missing something? Um, no, not now. I mean, there was a lot of coverage when the story broke in 2018. It is a very complex story to follow for a journalist. Um, and we, me and my colleagues had the best sourcing. We established relationships with some key people who were providing us with information and they couldn't be very public about it because they felt there was a serious risk to themselves. Um, so it wasn't an easy story for other journalists to follow. Um, it's taken a huge amount of work. It's years of work. The story was also unfolded across the world from Pakistan to the United Arab Emirates to Kenya to London to New York. It's a phenomenally large and complex story. And particularly myself and my co-author, Will Louch, we've invested a huge amount of time and energy to stay on top of it. Right. So, um, as I said, there is a criminal indictment. Six individuals, six former Braj executives have been criminally indicted by the United States. Two have pleaded guilty. Arif maintains his innocence. He was actually arrested in London and he was arrested in London in early 2019. And uh, he, he's appealing his extradition, the U.S., the UK court system has ordered his extradition to the United States, but he doesn't want to to go. So that process is very protracted. 
um, and very complex as well and hard to report on. It's hard to find information in the, the London courts about what is the current status of the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's not an easy story to tell right. for journalists. And there's a lot of moving parts where uh, even the people who are involved aren't so forthcoming, it seems, of saying how they were duped. And uh, it seems to be very opaque because what he does, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is he not only moves money from one fund to the other, which should be going back to the investor. So, for example, if they sell a business in fund A, the proceeds after his commission, after his uh, um, management fee and percentage of profit, should go back to the partners. Instead, what does he do? He starts delaying it, moving money around. And what I found so fascinating, he starts taking huge amounts of money to offshore accounts to just feather his nest. Yeah, that's what the documents show. So he's taking money around. And uh, what I found really just and just so many, so many holes is that even uh, KPMG, who's auditing the books, he knows that at the end of the month, they're going to look at the month-end balance. So he borrows money to make that last day of the month look good and then sends the money right back. I know if you go for a mortgage, they ask you for three months or so of continuous statements, not just one specific day at the end of a quarter. How does this slip through? It's a good question. And Abraj's liquidators and investors would like to know answers. And they'd like to know those answers so much that they are suing KPMG in the United Arab Emirates. So he not only goes ahead and does that, he goes ahead and continues to take new money from new investors in order to pay out old. Really, it's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, there is an element of that, definitely. So this guy's a mastermind. No one wants to go up against him. He is really well-connected, really, really very smart. And at the same time, he is leading a group of the global elite and really singing the tune they wanted to hear so badly that they suspend judgment and reality. Absolutely. And let's not forget, he was on the board of the UN Global Compact, which is a board that is supposed to advise the UN Secretary General on how companies can help reach the Sustainable Development Goals to end poverty by 2030. He's on the board of the Interpol Foundation, which is supposed to raise money for the global police force. So there comes a point when someone receives so much support from the elite that if they get into trouble, it's embarrassing for the elite and the elite don't want to talk about it. And that has been my experience in trying to get answers out of the elite about what went wrong here. Yeah, I sense they do not want to talk about yeah, it. I sense that they did want to talk about Abraj when it was a success story. They do not now. That does include managers of U.S. taxpayer funds, U.S. public pension funds, managing money belonging to teachers, judges, police officers. It has been fantastically hard to get answers out of these organizations. Okay, so now before you get this email from from the um, from the um, informant, uh, one person, which he was really happy to get, he was really happy to get the Gates Foundation, could that, is that he was able to leverage that for much more money. But unbeknownst to him, that was his downfall. Tell us about that. That's right. 
um, there's an individual at, working at the Gates Foundation called Andrew Farnham. And he's managing the Gates Foundation's investment in the Abraj Healthcare Fund in late 2017. And he notices that Abraj keeps asking the investors to send money to the fund to make new investments, but can't see that these new investments are being made. So he can see that the fund is accumulating money without spending it, apparently. So he asks Abraj where his money is being kept, which bank account is this money in? And the people at Abraj don't want to give him an answer, which I find kind of amazing. You know, if you send hundreds of millions of dollars to an investment firm, you would assume that they will just tell you where the money is if you ask. Well, by the way, that's the, not the, what There was one thing which, which just shocked me here is that we'll get back to you, they tell them. You, you don't know where yeah, hundreds we'll of millions of dollars are sitting? We'll get back to you? Yeah. And they get back to him eventually and say, you know, because you're the Gates Foundation, because of our wonderful relationship, we're going to make an exception and answer your question. The money's in Commercial Bank of Dubai. So this is in September 2017. Two months later, in November 2017, there's a conference call for the fund and investors going on. And Andrew Farnham asks again, can you just tell me where's the money being kept? And there's a pause. And then the answer is it's in Standard Bank in the Cayman Islands, at which point the alarm bells go off on go off in his head. He's like, what do you mean it's in Standard Bank? Two months ago, you told me the money's in the Cayman in Commercial Bank of Dubai. Which one is it? And there's a longer pause. And then they say, we'll get back to you. And Days later, they get back to him and they say the money's in um, Commercial Bank of Dubai. But at this point, Andrew Farnham has lost all trust in this money management firm, which doesn't know where his money is. So he talks to other investors and they uh, decide this is not a good situation. They've got to get forensic accountants in on the case and find out what's going on at a branch. Um, but before that happens, Arif, the, Arif Nagby, the founder of a branch, calls up a senior executive at the Gates Foundation and says something along the lines of, we're having problems with your, with your person, with Andrew Farnham. He's asking us difficult questions. Which, which, by we're the giving way, him answers. Let, let me just it doesn't seem to be enough. Let me just interject. That was his MO. He did that every time an underling would do something, he'd go right to the top to the relation and squash yes. it from the top. Yes, this happened at the World Bank and at the French fund Proparco. And in those instances, he succeeded in getting an apology out of the senior executive of the World Bank and Proparco. This, this tactic that he's using, I call it an abuse of hierarchy. He's He's using contacts at the top of organizations to silence the hard work of functionaries lower down within those organizations. And uh, it's pretty extraordinary, but it seemed to have been very effective with him. But to the credit of the Gates Foundation, it did not work at the Gates Foundation. So when the senior executive of the Gates Foundation had the conversation with Arif, after that, he called in Andrew Farnham and said, what's going on here? 
And Andrew said something along the lines of, look, it's us that should be offended. We're, I'm asking basic questions, not getting answers. Uh, we have a problem here. And the senior executive supported Andrew. He said, okay, go and find out what's going on. And because of that institutional support, that created a, a strength which Andrew was able to use to get other investors to work with him to get answers finally out of a brush. It is extraordinary that that didn't happen at the other investment firms where executives had identified problems. I mean, the heroes in this book are people who are just doing their jobs because it seems that so many people are not actually doing their jobs. Right, and this is going on for, for you really don't say, but I really couldn't get the dates, but it's been going on for at least a decade, no? Or even more? Um, yes. So this, this, the accounting tricks that had been used at Abraj had been used for well over a decade. But the problems kept getting bigger and bigger. So basically, Abraj was spending more than it earned, and it was moving money around in a way which it should not have in order to fill holes and plug gaps. And perhaps there was an expectation that at some point they'd earn enough money to fill all the holes and, and carry on being a successful firm. But that's not actually what happened. The holes got bigger and bigger, harder and harder to fill. And then whistleblowers were like contacting investors and journalists and some of those investors started to realize through their own analysis that there was a serious problem here. But it did take years. The Gates Foundation was invested in a branch for many years before Andrew Farnham identified this problem. I want to read on the back of your book, Harry Markopoulos, who was the whistleblower for Bernie Madoff. The SEC didn't listen to him. He called this in 2000 or so, five or seven or eight years before Madoff's sons turned them in. And he writes an un about your book, about the key men, about Arip, is an unbelievable true tale of greed, corruption, manipulation among the world's financial elite and how the World Bank, Bill Gates, the governments of the U.S., U.K., France, Germany, Norway, Netherlands, Sweden, and Kuwait fell victim to the world's largest private equity Ponzi scheme. And here I think is the most chilling. He writes, this guy makes Bernie Madoff look like a saint. Why do you say that? Well, your traditional fraudster takes says that they can make money for people. So Bernie Madoff, his clients were very wealthy people. He was saying to them, give me your money, I'll invest it, make more money, and give you back the profits. The Wolf of Wall Street is making the same pitch to, to regular Americans. I, you know, give me your money, I'll make more money and give it back to you. That's and then and then they steal it. A Braj, its pitch was, give me your money, we'll make you money, and we'll end poverty at the same time. So they, their promise was like way beyond your typical financial fraudster's pitch. This was a pitch which was not only an appeal to the desire of investors to be wealthy, but an appeal to every citizen that finance can solve the world's biggest problems. And so when that turned out not to be true, the betrayal is even greater 
than if what was lost was was the investment. What was lost in this story was not just money, but possibly faith in the possibility that money can be deployed in a way that can solve some big world problems. How many? How many? How much money are we talking about here that he that he stole or mismanaged, misplaced, transferred to his own account? Do you have any idea what the numbers are? So the 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 sum that liquidators say is still missing is about three hundred and eighty five million dollars, but there was a complex accounting to how the money was being moved in and out of a branch. So over the years, liquidators say $700 million odd was moved from a branch to Arif's companies and accounts and people close to him. And 400 odd money was, million dollars was sent back to the firm. It was sort of used like a, a checking account in a way. And at the, at the end, when the firm collapsed, this $385 million sum was, was missing. But the, 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 there's even more complexity to it than that. So in early 2018, the money that was missing from the healthcare fund where the US government and Bill Gates were investors, the missing money was put back in that fund by a branch. But... Just before that money was put back, Arif borrowed hundreds of millions of dollars from a UAE billionaire and then used that money to f- fill the healthcare fund. Yeah, by the way, just let me stop you a second. He seems to be the, the, the uh, tragic figure in that. He gives Abraj uh, uh, $350 million on a handshake and, and his money just goes up in smoke. In a heartbeat. It does. Uh, there's also $100 million of equity in a barrage, which is sold to a Swiss billionaire and an Indian billionaire too, which goes up in smoke. The issue is with this loan money, this $350 million, because a barrage subsequently filed for provisional liquidation less than six months later, the the, the lender of that money wants it back and is claiming it back not just from a barrage but from the healthcare fund so the point of this story is that while the gates foundation u.s government were made good there's now a court case going on where that billionaire who lent that money is saying to the healthcare fund investors i'd like my money back please so the finances are such a mess and there's so many cross claims and money missing, that there's all sorts of court cases going on all over the world related to a barrage where various investors are saying, I want that money back, and they want that money back, and that money back. So, um, so yeah. So, so let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Simon. You, you and Will, uh, your, your uh, uh, co-author, you really had to go through tons and tons of material and you had a whistleblower, and you were getting bits and pieces of information, and these people were scared for their lives because you had some of the, not some of, you had the wealthiest people in the world involved in this in embarrassing situations. At the end of the day, first of all, who knows, right? It's never the first number. 
It's never the 300. So it's always going to be more. <laughs> you know, the first number is always just the is the lowest number that will ever be that was taken. It always, in these kinds of cases, seems to be the starting point, and there's always multiples of that. But let's put all that aside. Why was I, as the reader, not feeling sympathy for the global elite? Sorry, Charles, you said that again. What's... Why, when I was reading this, I, you know, look, uh, you know, he was a bad guy. He's a nasty guy. And you, you put out all what, what type of, uh, he was, he was, a, he was cruel. He was a bully. I, I didn't like him. I didn't like him. I didn't like his company. I like where he treated people. The people who worked under him, uh, they had loyalty. He demanded loyalty. They seemed like good people, most of them. Really, you know, they were getting from people from all over the world to work in Dubai, and, and they were doing well. He was paying them well. And these people were really putting in the hours. But towards the end of the book, why am I feeling as the reader that, you know, the global elite got what they deserved? I know that sounds cruel, but why, why do I feel that way? Because they didn't do their due diligence. But, but, but is that, but is that day, reason enough? But is that reason enough for me to feel like good for you? I, I don't know why. I just felt a little uncomfortable when I read this. Like I, I, I knew who the villain was and uh, I knew who the victims were. But, you know, I was kind of rooting towards the end. Maybe this is just my own thing uh, for the for the villain to take these people because they're so pompous and they thought they knew everything. And uh, they they it was so condescending the way they treated others around them that they suspended reality in order to make their narrative fit. I, that's just my take. Maybe that's- yeah, I, I got a thought about that. I mean, we've tried very hard to write about human beings here. And, 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 and Arif is, is human. And he had a lot of ambition, he had a lot of aspiration. And, and it has turned out badly for him. He, you know, he was trying hard to fulfill a dream and um, it looks like cutting quite a lot of corners at the same time. But you know what? I don't think it was so much fulfilling a dream. This is just my take, uh, Simon, and you're much closer to it. It seemed to fulfill his dream of being a big shot. Yeah. It was, you know, it, 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 it was the conduit was making the world a better place, but it was all him first and foremost because at the end, he's even – He's moving money around. He's sending emails right before he's going on into a conference talking about helping the world and feeding the poor. It's just, I looked at it, I said, what kind of nut do you have to be to do that? Well, yes. And, and if that person is successful in raising billions of dollars and getting placed on the board of Interpol and the UN Global Compact, to me, that suggests there's a serious problem with the system that runs the world. Yeah. And so perhaps that's where your feeling is coming from at the end, that the people that supported this firm deserve to be involved in a situation that's ended with this negative outcome. Right. They, they deserve to have uh, their knuckles wrapped uh, because they yeah, gave... And they, they, because, you know, the things that everyone in this book is saying they want to achieve, you know, end poverty, improve the environment, these are things that we need. But clearly, if they're going to go about trying to solve these situations in this way, then they are not going to be successful. And we all need to know that, and we all need that to be seen. 
because these people are very powerful. These systems are very powerful. These organizations are very powerful. And what I have learned from reporting this story and other stories is that when things go wrong for large organizations, there seems to be a tendency for them to hide it rather than face it and learn from it. And that's why this book is so important, in my opinion. Um, it really does lay out how powerful people can make mistakes, how those mistakes can be hidden, and why we all need to see them and understand them and learn the lessons from them. And be on the lookout. And be on the lookout for the next thing. Uh, Simon, you did a great job, you and Will. Uh, uh, the book is The Key Man, The True Story of How the Global Elite Was Duped by a Capitalist Fairy Tale. And this is going to make a great movie. And you told me, I think uh, you already have the screenplay, right, out there? Someone uh, optioned it? Yeah, we have a producer, a New York producer, who wants to make a movie out of it. Oh, this would be a great movie. I don't know where you, but, you know, it's just, it has so many great players in it. And uh, it, it, it's... Uh, it has it has everything <laughs> everything you need for a for a movie where um, where it, it financial elites billions intrigue sex scandal wow the whole nine yards really really well done how's the book being received now it's been very well received it had great reviews in financial times economist other newspapers uh, getting great feedback from readers such as yourself. Which is, which is great. Were you threatened, or, or will you? You were will threatened uh, when you were doing your research on this. Were you threatened physically? Sorry? Were you threatened physically uh, when you were doing this book? Well, we were fellow reporters at the Wall Street Journal's office in London, and we've spent an awful lot of time together and working on this for years. Um, so. We know each other very well now. No, but I'm saying, were, were you were there threats to your life or to your well-being because of this book and because you were prodding in places you shouldn't have been? Not, not physical threats, but lots of legal threats. Yeah, guess. Uh, I mean, it, it was a very complex piece of reporting. After we got the initial whistleblower, because that person wouldn't give us their name, we couldn't actually use that email. So then we had to go and establish contact with dozens of other sources and people who would tell us who they were, who shared documents with us, which, you know, had evidence of wrongdoing. And these very brave people who we know who they are, you know, we couldn't have reported this story without them. And the documents which we gathered for our journalism in 2018, subsequently, it turned out were being used by the Department of Justice to build their criminal case. The DOJ did not get the documents from us. They uh, probably got them from the same sources that we mm. got them from. Yeah, these guys had courage. You know, they wanted to right or wrong. Uh, that was it. Uh, as Simon, great. The name, once again, folks, is The Key Man. Go out and get the book. It's really a great read. And if you were ever duped uh, by anyone, you wouldn't feel bad because uh, here were the wealthiest, most connected people in the world, and they were duped. So I guess it goes to show you is that there's a, you know, a sucker born every minute and two to take them. And sometimes those, you know, takers are really, really sharp. Really sharp. Uh, Simon, all the success to you, man. Thanks so much for being on the show. And and I hope to have you back when uh, this ever goes to trial and if he ever gets extradited to the United States, because 
the book's still in flux because we're still not over yet. Uh, he's still, I, is he a free man or is he a house arrest in, in UK or what? He's effectively on, under house, house arrest. He's out on bail, had to pay 15 million pounds to get bail, living in South Kensington, which is a, the, one of the finer parts of London. Right, he's really roughing it, poor guy. All right, man. Simon, thanks so much and, and all the success to you. Thank you very much, Charles. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.